Welcome to the very first edition of the London Politica podcast, where we join industry thought leaders and experts to uncover the nexus of politics, markets, and society. My name is Manas Chavla, and I'm incredibly excited to be joined by Klisman Marabi. Klisman is the founder and CEO of Pangea Wire Group, a research house and strategic consultancy based out of London. He also appears frequently on Al Jazeera, BBC, and RT, presenting his unique take on all sorts of geopolitical developments. Klisman, it's so wonderful to have you. Pleasure to be here, Manas. Klisman, I want to start off by exploring your overarching narrative. Because Ian Bremmer, the president of Eurasia Group, pioneered this very famous idea of a G0 world, essentially the idea that we're currently in a moment of geopolitical recession, and that's been triggered by the United States taking a step back in world affairs. Uh, and, and quite notably, you disagree with that narrative. You have a different take on the world. Tell me more about that. Yeah, I do. Uh, I know Ian Bremmer well. His work is something which, you know, in my studies, I grew up studying his his works. But his assumption, I think, is very US-centric. His basic theory is that the reason why the world is so geopolitically active is because somehow America is taking a backseat in world affairs, which is allowing pockets or vacuums of power to emerge. And this is causing powers which wouldn't have been active in specific parts of the world now being more active because the US is no longer active in that part of the world. But that is a very false assumption, first because it gives too much importance to the power and the and the influence of the United States in all corners of the world. And second, it doesn't take into, into account the concept that we developed, which is a nation's centers of powers are developing. Now, this is what's breakthrough about the work that we do, is that although the US is important, it's important not because it's magically more powerful than anyone else. It's important because it has developed on all six axes of what we call the centers of power. So there are certain things which nations develop and these aren't only specific to nations, but principalities of the past, empires of the past, which are all based on these six uh, axioms of power, which allow it to be a very powerful player in world affairs, which include things like its military balance, its active consumer market, its technological leadership, its geostrategic positioning, where it's located on the map and how it takes advantage of, of choke points and its size and, and its access to the sea and how many seas and, and oceans it has access to, etc. How many enemies and friends it has around it. So these are many things that are constantly evolving organically. And the US, since after uh, the fall of the USSR, was the undisputed military power of the world. And it developed its COPs faster than anyone else. And it had that time frame to develop. Before the US, it was the European empires, which also had very powerful COPs, which is why we saw the empires of Britain, of France, of Spain, of Portugal, etc., being so powerful on the world stage because they developed these COPs. But after World War II, the majority, if not all, uh, uh, European powers were completely you know, cut from their throne because of the sheer damage that happened after the two world wars that the U.S. was the only nation which had the time from the end of the Cold War until now to develop on all these six, all these six sides, which is why it's so powerful. But as time passes, nations, other nations around the world will have the time to also develop their centers of power, which will then allow them to have a much larger voice in world affairs, which will then allow them to you know, throw their weight around, I guess, a little bit more because they have uh, more of an, of an income coming in into their country, because they're spending more money on defense, because their GDP is rising, because 
their actual middle class is growing, which means, you know, companies want to sell into that market a lot more, which is why they then have the ability to use tariffs on other nations, which is making the World Trade Organization much more of a hotbed of dispute. So this is why nations are growing and this is why geopolitics is becoming more of an issue. We have parts of the world where before, let's say in the Middle East, where again, the, the UK and France were the dominant players. And then afterwards, we saw the nations of the Middle East grow in their power, meaning their GDP rose. Countries like you know Saudi Arabia and the GCC became more powerful because they managed to use their oil income to then spend money on defense, spend money on developing their, their, their active consumer market, spending money, and also their ambitions also grow once you have this developing. So when your ambitions grow, your, your, your ability is ba- your ambitions, I think, are based on your ability and your, and your resources. And if that's plentiful, then you have more of a voice and you get more brave when it comes time. Well, I guess not brave, but you get more ambitious when it comes time to international affairs. Um, and also, as the nations become weaker, you have a, a weaker voice in international affairs also. So that's how it moves organically. So saying that, yes, we are living in a somewhat G0 world or a, or a unipolar world or, or, or a more multipolar world. But that's not because the US is saying, hey, guys, you guys can have more of the pie. The pie is growing, which is why people can take more slices as opposed to the US taking a smaller slice. That's the way that we like to portray it. And seeing it from that angle, you have a much better understanding of how the world is developing and you have an appreciation for nations and their ability to also be self-actualized and have the ability to actually um, fulfill their agendas and create more ambitious agendas for themselves. Really fascinating. I mean... So you're looking at the world and, and thinking about all these systemic structural factors uh, that work organically uh, and that shape the world in the way that they do. But I think That's a right. lot That's of right. foreign policy, that a lot of the international affairs or IR orthodoxy um, really looks at you know the United States unipolar moment uh, as part of a grander narrative of it trying to assert itself on the world, of it trying to become a global policeman. And particularly, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this uh, are going to think back at the last four years of Donald Trump. And think, you know, the United States definitely taken a step back in world affairs. You know, they've left the Paris Climate Agreement. They've left the Trans-Pacific Partnership. They've left uh, the Human Rights Council. They've undermined NATO. They've cozied up the dictators. And certainly them receding this influence from the global sphere uh, has given a lot of room for China uh, to move up and assert its own influence. I mean, China recently signed uh, the RCEP, I believe, uh, asserting its economic dominance uh, in Southeast Asia uh, mm-hmm. after the United States withdrawal. So, so what do you what do you think? What, what would you say to these people? Uh, and and what do you think is the impact of the United States uh, withdrawing from some of these agreements, particularly in the context of uh, Trump's presidency? That's a good question. I think the first thing I would say is you need to have a much longer appreciation for history, because if you think U.S. power. And the, the U.S. has really, in, in terms of, of nations, it hasn't really been around for a long time. And I compare this to, to, to China. Now, China, as, as an ethno-nationalist body, I guess, has been around for the last 4,000 years. And we have the Warring States period, which, has, which you know, one, one dynasty, for example, the Zhao dynasty, I believe, was around for around 700 years, which is a lot longer than the United States has been in existence. So when you look at IR theory, naturally, because the U.S. plays such an important role now, and it has played a a role in sort of this, I don't want to get conspiratorial, but this new world order that has come after World War II, 
with the founding of the World Bank, the IMF, and other Western institutions. That's where sort of history begins for these IR theorists. But looking at the world through that lens and focusing on America a lot, I guess it is warranted because they've played such an important role. But they've played an important role not because they're somehow magically a more powerful nation, but because they've developed on these, as I mentioned, these COPs a lot faster uh, and at a speed a lot, lot faster and also more strength on all sides, which is why IR theorists put such an important role on the U.S. And naturally so. There was sort of um, an understanding after World War II that the U.S. will provide the institutions, they'll provide the money, and also in, 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 in response, you know, Western institutions and governments will then be in alliance with these democratic principles that America um, re-established or established more firmly in the world. And China is has a different narrative and their history is a lot longer. Also, Iran's history is a lot longer also, but Iran perhaps doesn't have the, the global ambition and the resources, let's say, to behave the same way that China has. But IR theories are important. I remember studying them when I was in university too. And they are interesting, but I think for what's actually happening in the world, they sometimes are disconnected to what's actually going on. And because a lot of the, the, these theorists, I like John D. Farron is a great example. I like his theories and, and, and a lot of others. But there's a lot of things that are happening in the world which these theories don't take into account. For example, the rapid rise of technological leadership and advancement isn't something which has been explored in these IR theories. They, they typically take you know, hard power and diplomatic soft power as the basis for power. Whereas what we're saying is that power is based not only on, on how much guns you have and, and your voice on the international stage, but it's based on a lot more factors. And you need a, a, a multidisciplinary approach when approaching these complex issues, which currently at this moment in time, we don't see a lot of. Which is worrying because if you are then educating the new generation of leaders on, on I believe, important but somehow outdated theories, then you're really not setting them up to understand the world in its complexity that we see today. So that's what I would say to them. And I'm thinking, I can't remember his name now, but um, it slipped my mind, but there was a, th a theory which is the heartland theory. I can't remember, who, uh, I can't remember the name of, of, of the gentleman who came up with it, where, where he said that the Eurasian landmass is, if you have control over the Eurasian landmass, then Asia, then that's where the power structure lies. And then you have fledgling other parts of the world which uh, are important. These theories were important for that day and age. But again, as the world changes, as technology evolves, as globalization becomes more prominent, as geopolitics becomes more prominent, as societies, as migration patterns move and change, these are things that these theories don't take into account at all. And we need um, new perspectives for this new world. We can't rely on what was said 50 years ago, even 100 years ago, even 20 years ago to really explain what's happening today. It's really regressive the way that they think of it. So we need new theories and new ideas of why the world is changing because, you know, developments won't stop because the theories don't cover it. So we need these new approaches to cover what's happening today. Right. That's interesting because you're looking at both the historical view of the way these polities have evolved over, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, uh, but also update uh, the models through which we look at them and assess their relative power balances. And I think on that note, I mean, you've narrowed down six centers of power. Uh, just briefly tell me a bit more about that, but also kind of as we evolve and as, you know, like you mentioned, uh, technology plays a greater role in the way geopolitics unfolds in the world. Um, are there emerging centers of power uh, that you think uh, are relevant and need to be taken into account? Are there uh, such developments? 
Yeah, for sure. So to, to attack the first part, these senses of power idea, they're very important as a basis. So out of these senses of power, what we're saying is that as nations develop on all of these six factors, their power and their ambitions and their ability and their resources grow also. Some things are very difficult to grow. For example, one, of, one other sense of power is their natural resources that they have available to them. Some nations are bound with natural resources, some aren't. For example, Japan unfortunately isn't, but they make up for it in other ways. You see, uh, then you have nations, Uganda, for example, who has you know a lot of copper, or obviously nations in the Middle East and Russia, which have a lot of oil, they take advantage of that. So some things you're blessed with, some things you're not. But if you're not blessed with specific, specific things, then you, you need to make up with it by being top heavy on the other aspects, which is why Japan is such an important uh, player in the international stage. Although their natural resource uh, depositories are nowhere to be seen, um, that's why nuclear power is, is, is such an important energy source, and that's why imports of, 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 of oil and gas is so important to them. If they had these, then they would be even an even bigger power. But then what happens out of this, out of all of this organic growth happening in different parts of the world, and you can almost see it as like, um, as like the flow, you, you can almost see it in, uh, in, in a chart where as time passes, a nation's power on all six axes grows organically and develops. And what comes out of that are, are four themes which if you look at them are going to be the deciding factors of business and of society for the next 100 years and our and our and our outlook is for the next 100 years so we ask the question what will be the main changes and challenges in the next 100 years and the four main themes that come out of this organic growth of the sense of power are fourfold which include globalization becomes more important so factors uh, revolving around that which is trade sanctions uh, uh, you know a rules-based order all things in relation to globalization becomes important. Geopolitics becomes important, more active, as we mentioned before. Transformative technology also becomes important because technological leadership coupled, uh, coupled with, uh, let's say, uh, a rising military balance, you can see how military technology can develop in that part of the world, right? So technological leadership becomes important. Also, you can take technological leadership as one of the CCOPs and an active consumer market. You can see how things like social media become important in societies like America, where, it, where you know, social media was, where they birthed social media. Uh, and the last one, societal change. And mentioning, I think I spoke to you, I spoke to a journalist earlier today, I can't remember. Um, one way in which we can encapsulate societal change is this one sentence, and that is, more people are doing more things in more places. Now, if you take any societal issue, you can apply that, that, uh, that uh, axiom to it, and that will explain what's happening. For example, the rise of animosity of migration is because more people from more parts of the world are traveling to more other parts of the world, which is causing a lot of societal fracturing to happen and a lot of pressure on public services, which is causing animosity from those who would who are probably disenfranchised before and now perceive themselves as being more di di disenfranchised. So these are the four things that emerge out of a nation developing their COPs. And these are the four areas we work on as a firm when we speak to clients and our audience. So our audience and our clients verge from, you know, militaries from different parts of the world, from, uh, from foreign direct investment um, uh, departments in governments, from private businesses to asset managers, hedge funds, family offices, anyone who's really curious about how the world is developing. And funnily enough, saying this, uh, I was reading uh, The 100 Year Marathon by Michael Pillsbury, He's, he's sort of a China expert, and he mentions this, and this is uh, uncorrelated completely on our end, but in his book, he mentions how China also sees the world this way through, through, through 100-year outlooks. 
and their their outlook on the world is, is very very um very very long term and they have similar concepts that we also have developed or, you know organically uh, separate from them in how we see the world and if if uh if nations across the world are going to develop, they need to understand how they develop on all these six areas. And talking about what parts of the world are developing, I think every part of the world is developing in different ways. Um, in terms of technology, we have you know, original power bases like the West, we have uh, the United States, we have Europe, uh, we have the, uh, the UK. Although it's funny when you mention Europe and the UK, there's, there's, there's opinions on whether they should be clumped into one, but that's, that's a conversation for a different time. Uh, Israel obviously is, 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 is a massive player. China is a massive player. Japan is a massive player. Um, I think what nations are doing now, depending on their resources, is that they're, they're trying to develop their USPs in their own nation. So some nations are taking advantage of the fact that they have massive natural uh, resources reserves and they want companies to take advantage of that. Some nations may have, um, may have more technological leadership and may have a population who are younger and who are more educated that they want to, they, that they want to take advantage of. For example, nations in the Balkans have some of the highest youth populations in all of Europe. So they're taking advantage as best they can of their youth population uh, to make their nation more attractive to different kinds of investments. So the key for nations now are to look at how you're developing on your COPs and to see what you can offer, uh, what your nation can offer to uh, outside and also internal investment to make your nation stand out more. A good example of this is this is within the GCC nations. You have much larger nations like Saudi Arabia who have a much larger military power than a nation like Qatar, right? But Qatar, due to its size, it's using its power in different ways to be a mediator between conflicts, more so than what Saudi Arabia can do. Because they're so big, they, they tend to be the weight on one side or, or the other, let's say Saudi versus Iran, where Qatar can play a much smaller role and much more facilitative role. And they're using that to their advantage in different ways. So the key for nations for the next at least 50 years is to figure out what, power, what role you can play in your region and in the world and what can you be amazing at. And it's when you become so meticulous about this is where you develop an offering that even your neighbors don't have or any other nation can't have because you focused on what you're good at and you take advantage of that as best you can. Mm -hmm. Um. And I find, I mean, one thing you said really surprising, which is that you take the hundred year outlook, right? Yeah. And that comes across as a surprise, especially in the political risk world, because uh, at London Political, we do a lot of consulting work. And when we're talking to clients, I mean, generally, they're concerned about what's going to happen, you know, by the next business cycle, uh, or maybe what's going to happen by the next year or, you know, the next four year presidential term. But really, no one's thinking outside that, you know, four or five year box, Um and, and lots of people might look at your 100-year outlook and, and say, you know, maybe that's a little bit too ambitious. Uh, anyone uh, in 1921 might certainly not have been able to predict uh, to any degree of accuracy, perhaps, the kind of world uh, that we live in today that's, you know, riddled by sort of a receding United States, rising centers of power elsewhere, a global pandemic. I mean, how do you square the two of those? Why do you have uh, a focus on such a long-term horizon as opposed to a shorter one? Yeah, that's a good question because we get asked this a lot as well. And no doubt having short-term goals is very important to any business or government looking to make change, for sure. Because without these small-term, medium-term goals, you can't get anywhere. You can't have a macro goal without knowing how you're going to get there. But my our, our point is, is that as a nation and as a company, you need to realize how much imp the importance that you have in such a globalized world. And if you have global ambitions, then your global ambitions can't only be projected the next five years out. Naturally, for governments, 
Um, depending on what, depending on the election cycle, that tends to be the case. But no matter if that is the case, your main um, your main philosophies need to remain the same. And if you see nations like China who have such a long outlook, they're they're conducting their business affairs accordingly. And naturally, you may not have the ability to because it's every election cycle. But you need to have instilled in your populace, in your government structures, that this is a long term game that you're playing. And you're right in saying that an, that a country or, or a company in 1921, many or yeah, 1921. Uh, many have not even, some died between then and now, some were born between then and now, and some are yet to come. But our point is, is that we're not trying to predict the future because that's impossible. Really, it is impossible because something like COVID or anything can come out which, which, um, which disrupts your plans or disrupts the outlook. But what we're saying is that the themes that are coming out in the next 100 years are fourfold, which are the global four, the G4, which are globalization, geopolitics, transformative technology, and societal change. Within that, you can get very granular and seeing how does this impact this in short-term horizons, but realizing that you're playing for the long game, that, that uh, companies and governments develop over time. And as nations also grow in their power and their, their, their influence, they're going to want to have a longer-term time horizon also. So without having that long-term time horizon, and if you're only playing the short game, then anything that comes in your face that is threatening, you're more willing to change your direction because you don't have a longer term plan of, of what you want to achieve. You know, And this isn't only the responsibility of the CEO or of the prime minister or the president, but this needs to be, um, this needs to be instilled within the different organs of government, within the different organs of companies to say, we may not be around for the next 100 years, but for sure, we are going to develop the technologies and the methodologies that will exist for a long time because what we're trying to do is long term. If you look at different companies, well, we have perfect examples. And also, I think, depends on the vision of the, of, of the leader and also depends on the vision and the history of the company. You have companies which are purely out there for profit and to make, you have many investment firms which are out there purely to, to make money and that's their business and that's their MO, right? Which is fair enough. But then you have companies and leaders like Elon Musk who wants to have, uh, wants to be a multi-planetary species. We want humans to do that. So his ambition is definitely more than the next quarter. You know, he even says a lot of things which are truthful, which hurts his stock price. But in the long run, he knows that's what he wants to achieve with his team. So if you want to have such grandiose ambitions, you definitely need to have longer than, than, than a every quarter, every five years time horizon. If you want to be a multi-planetary species, which is crazy for some people, then you need to have these long-term ambitions. Obviously you plan in the short term, but you need to realize what you're working towards. And that really depends on the leadership that you have, depending on the resources and, and also your stamina as a business leader and also as a government. Because so many things are happening. As I mentioned, these, these, um, global, these G4, something I forgot to mention is that they're... They're all, they're, all, uh, they're all happening at the same time. So they're coalescing at the same time, which is causing a lot of difficulties and a lot of questions that governments and companies are asking where in the past they would never have to ask this question, these questions before. And they're confused and naturally so. And they're going to make mistakes along the way. They're going to create the rules of the game as they go along. A lot of people are going to be frustrated and a lot of people are going to be happy by what's happening. But you need to have this long-term um, appreciation and just look at history for that. Ask historians, they will tell you how important it is to have a long-term appreciation of things, you know? So you need to have that in order to plan effectively uh, for your nation or for your company to survive, literally survive uh, in, in some cases, and, and to be prosperous for your people and for your employees and for your customers. Mm -hmm. And speaking of nation that's, you know, planning for the next hundred years, I want to talk a bit about China because... Sure. Uh, Xi Jinping, you know, indicated a really fascinating shift in China's sort of macroeconomic policy 
that went uh, pretty much under the radar uh, for a lot of the kind of international establishment. Um, you know, he wants to move away from the very heavy reliance that China's had on exports and trade, uh, and that's really made an economic powerhouse. He wants to start looking inwards uh, to find a domestic consumer market uh, to bolster their growth, you know, have both inward circulation and outward circulation. He calls this a policy of dual right. circulation. And I'm just wondering, I mean, as we see a rising China uh, struggle for power, perhaps, uh, with a dominant United States, how do you think this policy uh, of dual circulation, this pivot, is going to fit into the kind of geopolitical order that an increasingly powerful China wants to see uh, in a post-US-centric world? Uh, that's if they get their wish to be a post-U.S. centered role. That's something which the U.S. establishment now is thinking about how they can maintain this uh, with buy-in from their allies also, because nothing happens without allies, without without consensus in some way, shape or form. So now with China's rise, you're right in saying that their dual circulatory development model is part of their... E- e- Every five years, they come up with, 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 with a, again, micro-strategy every five years to, to, to get to their, their goal. And their main goal is by 2049, which is 100 years since the founding of, of, of communist China, to be a dominant or the dominant player in the world. That's, that's an ambition that they've said outwardly. Um, so every five years, they plan on how to do this. And given the geopolitical tensions with Trump and also with COVID, their dual circulatory model was in response to this, which they're focusing on internal consumption and growth, and also... Uh, independence of technological leadership and supply chains. That's what they really want to develop because they realize that with COVID and with the changing political landscape that they need to be more independent in growing and developing. A great example is their micro, is their, is their, uh, what's that? I can't remember the name now. They're um, not my, my microprocessors, but I can't remember, it, 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 it slips my mind. Um, mm-hmm. But there's a specific te- technology that goes into phones, into laptops. There's a, um, circuit, I can't remember the name now, but um they want to be independent in being able to man- manufacture this themselves. For example, when, when, when the issues with, with, with Huawei came out, especially in the UK, when they U-turned and using Huawei for the 5G infra- uh, infrastructure, um, companies like Huawei were sanctioned by the US and others, which means you know, these, these technologies and these, these, these components couldn't get to China to be used in their, in their circuit boards. And China needs to develop their own independence in this case if they are to develop their ambitions in the long run. So they definitely have a plan of action that they want to take. Naturally, developing your plan of action takes cooperation, takes a responsive international, um, you know, international players to make that happen for you, which is why the Belt and Road Initiative was so important for them. At least in their idea, they want to develop these, these, uh, these supply chains and these routes in order to, to develop secure, mar- to secure markets for food, agricultural, natural resources, so they have these supplies coming back to their country because you may not know this, but you know, food supply, food shortages are, is, is, an important, is, an, is an important worry that China has, which is, why, which is why Xi Jinping, when he came into office and throughout his, his, his tenure, which is, which is a lifetime tenure now, I guess, uh, made it imperative that uh, food wastage shouldn't be, a, sh- sh- shouldn't, be, uh, shouldn't be a thing. And this was implemented onto the onto the the party faithful, and he's trying to implement this into a wider sense into the Chinese community where food isn't wasted, because food shortages are a big thing. So they're trying to secure markets uh, in Africa and in other parts of the world where they can grow uh, agriculture and they, they can grow crops in order to supply their people. And it's really a fight between what China's ambitions are and whether they get them. 
And there's many different things that can happen along the way, which will stop that and which will slow that down, which will speed that up and which will hinder this ambition. So this is really a game of understanding what's happening in terms of what China's development plans are. And also to have insights which don't come from a Western perspective for a Western perspective. You need a Chinese perspective for a Western market. And that's what we did in our previous white paper, which we published uh, on M&A in China, which is available on our website if you want, uh, where you can read about the dual circulatory development model and what that means for M&A. And it's important to realize that Western countries and uh, Western, I think the global Western uh, countries are seeing China's, China's, China's strength. And also even during communist times, you know, the USSR saw China's ambition, which is why, um, especially during the end of communism, they weren't the best of friends because they realized that although China does buy into this communist ideology, they're doing this strictly out of the fact that communism allows for strong, strong central uh, control over your government, which will allow the CCP then to, to enact their, uh, their ambitions uh, however they want to. And the USSR saw China's ambitions early on. And um, the kind of the, the delicate dance between the USSR China and the US was one which is, you know, shrouded in mystery uh, if you look at it from afar. But for sure, these were dances that were happening and China played a very good game along the way to sort of convince the West that they were weak, they didn't have ambitions, they never wanted to be, you know, the center of attention, whereas their actions showed otherwise. They never really allowed their markets to open. Human rights was, was always an issue. Whenever it came time to democracy, they always said, well, this isn't in our culture, this isn't our, they will be able to do things. But they kind of dangled the active consumer market of 1.3 billion people in front of companies in the global West to say, hey, you want access to this? You need to sort of be more lenient in the way that we behave because, you know, we're still trying to learn how it is to be an international player. But they have ambitions behind that, which shows throughout their, their history. And they have lessons throughout the warring states period in terms of tactics and stratagems that they use and which they're implementing right now. And also, one last thing to mention about China is that um, people think that it's one homogenous body. The CCP has one homogenous viewpoint, you know? Uh, but it's, that's far from the truth. They have different factions within uh, the party establishment. You have the Ying Pai, for example, which is, which is more the hardliners. You have past, you know, leaders uh, like Jiang Zemin, who still hold quite a lot of sway within the party. Hu Jintao also, which hold a lot of sway within the party, uh, currently still in their factions. So it's far from being homogenous. But what China does, which is which is good, I guess, for them, is that they don't publicize or they don't air out their dirty laundry to the media in China or to the West to see how fractured they could be in different parts. So it, it remains homogenous from the outside. But internally, there's a lot of developments that happen. A lot of people who have different points of view of how to approach, you know, developments with the West from Mao's time till now you know, throughout the five leaderships that they've they, they had with, 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 with uh, Mao. And this is consistently happening. And this is something that I don't think is understood as well from a Western audience to realize that they are not, they don't have one aim and they're going towards it without sort of bends and turns along the way, which they, they, they take together. Right. And I mean, one country that, you know, loves to sort of air its dirty laundry is the United States, because we're living in a very, very polarized moment right now. And there's not very much that uh, Democrats and Republicans can see eye to eye on. But one really interesting area of mutual agreement is their kind of almost bipartisan hawkish policy on China. I mean, obviously they have intricacies to that, but uh, it's very mm -hmm. rare to see, you know, both sides of the aisle agree on being tough on China and on this idea of kind of trying to reclaim dominance, particularly economic dominance. Uh, mm. and, I, and I'm wondering, I mean, what do you think the next four years of, of Biden uh, will bring for U.S.-China relations, especially 
in, in context of uh, sort of macroeconomic situation that's unfolding. Yeah. Manas, you're asking really good questions here. I'm, I'm really liking the the the, the questions. Um, when it comes time to Biden, I think initially, I think it's it's a false assumption to say it's really early on in his presidency to see what he'll do, because we we, we have examples of what he did when he was vice president, you know. And during his campaign, he mentioned, oh, I'm going to be so different. I'm going to be this. I'm going to be that. And, you know, I'll give it to Trump. He mentioned many times that, hey, listen, you were a vice president before. You've been in government for the last 40 odd years. What have you done in all of this time for you to actually do what you say? Why is it now that you're going to plan these grandiose visions and you're going to execute without any pullback or without any hesitation? Which was a very correct point, I believe. Biden has been vice president during Obama's time. And when um, Hu Jintao was, uh, was president before Xi, you know, they uh, they try to work together with the Chinese in different ways. Uh, when Xi Jinping spoke at Davos, not this time around, but last time around, it was Biden who was in the audience at Davos to listen to his speeches. But I think from the campaign trail where Biden called Xi Jinping a thug, that needs to be that 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 that, that, that needs to be corrected, I guess. Uh, from that statement to now, I think you're seeing a lot more. You see, you're seeing a lot more of a of a conciliatory tone with China. What Biden, I think, wants to do is have a multilateral approach to Chinese affairs as opposed to more bilateral, meaning I don't think he's a fan of just slapping sanctions and having a trade war with China. I think he wants a more a consensus building, so a, a, a coalition of the willing, if, if you will, against or uh, towards China. It would be interesting to see because one thing which I was very surprised at is that when Biden became president, you know, right after that, the Chinese Communist Party sanctioned um, san sanctioned uh, Mike Pompeo and and and, and other uh, ex-Trump uh, uh, you know cabinet members, and Biden said nothing about that. He didn't mention that was a bad thing. You know, although you know they were you know in opposition to them for the elections, you you would expect some sort of words or some sort of denouncements from the Biden camp that this isn't a good thing and we're going to fight against this. But we heard nothing from them. And Biden right now isn't really, and he's mentioned on several occasions that he's not really willing to rush to the negotiation table with China. And what he's done, I think, early on, which maybe gave him favor to the media, although he didn't really need much uh, convincing by the media to say that he was the good guy against Trump, but he put into action a lot of uh, a lot of um, executive orders, which which were very easy to do. He kind of signed back up to the, the, the Paris Climate Accord. He signed back up to the WTO. The Keystone XL pipeline from Canada. He 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 cancelled any any further pro progress with that, which really you know ticked uh, Canada off, and a bunch of other things which he mandated, like the wearing of masks for all uh, government employees, which was really easy to do. These are kind of easy things to do. You know, it doesn't take it doesn't take a lot of effort to say these are natural progressions of what you would do to to show how different you are from a Trump administration. But what's more difficult to do is how do you engage with China on different fronts, from the trade front, from the forced IP theft front, from the forced technology transfers, from even the COVID, where COVID originated from and finding that out also. Uh, also with in, in relation to uh, to Iran, what, what you do with that what you do with that situation. How do you work in such a multipolar world now? How do you work with cybersecurity? How do you approach Russia? How do you work with your allies uh, to, ensure, to, to ensure equitable trade, especially now with Brexit happening? How do you interact with that? How do you interact with Venezuela? What's, what's happening in that part of the world? There's many different things happening that have fallen really off the wayside, especially in the media because COVID really took over. But you still have the issues in Hong Kong. You still have Belarus. It's still, it's still something that's happening. You see you know, movements in Russia now where you have the op 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 opposition leader in jail and arrested and all things are happening there. 
So many things are happening around the world. You have with the EU, with Balkan, the Balkan nation accessions into the EU. What's going to happen with there? How does the how does the United States play a role? Although Biden has got a history of working with Balkan nations, especially with uh, with uh, Albania, um, how will he approach that situation? How do you approach uh, how do you approach the issues of human rights and 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 uh, and and Yemen in the Middle East? How do you approach uh, you know Saudi uh, Iran relations? So many things are happening that. Focusing only on U.S.-China is 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 important, but he hasn't done anything in that case. And okay, we'll give him time to see what he does, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he takes on similar approaches to 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 uh, Obama. And he has a very experienced team around him, I guess, which will direct him. But it's going to be interesting to see. But it definitely won't be the same approach that Trump took. And whether that's good or for or for bad, we'll see what happens with the result of his actions. Absolutely. Um- Really quickly, I want to take us to a bit more of a distressing topic, shall we say, because one of the really kind of significant and fascinating consequences that you've outlined uh, of the kind of geopolitical developments we've seen lately is the heightened risk of hybrid warfare. Yeah. So for those listening in the audience, I mean, hybrid warfare essentially is a combination of conventional warfare. That's the stuff that we've seen, uh, you know, for thousands of years. So that's the invading countries and sponsoring proxies. Uh, but a combination of that and newer forms of warfare, uh, stuff like cyber attacks, stuff like cur- currency manipulation that we've seen China do uh, a lot of. So, so tell me a bit more about how we're going to see these newer forms of warfare unfold, particularly in 2021. I mean, we've already seen some glimpses of it uh, in 2016 with the Russian hacks uh, last late last year when uh, there were Russian hacks of the government and various government uh, yeah, bodies. So mm-hmm. how are we going to see this in 2021 unfold? It's going to be messy, I think, Manas. It's going to be very messy because... Firstly, hybrid warfare happens in, on different levels depending on the capability of your nation. Mm-hmm. And it also depends on not only the capability of your nation, but also the capabilities and the infrastructure of the nation in which you're trying to attack, quote-unquote. Uh, quote if a nation doesn't have such uh, sophisticated cyber infrastructure, then cyber warfare against that nation is going to be useless. Try to do a cyber warfare attack against, let's say, even Cuba compared to sanctions is going to have two different effects, right? Sanctions have, have, have had much bigger effects than any cyber campaign against them because their cyber infrastructure arguably isn't as developed as, as America was, well, definitely not, as, as, the, as the United States or any other nation even surrounding it. So it depends on those factors, what your capabilities are and also what the capabilities and the weak points of the nation which you're quote-unquote attacking. And Iran is saying that there's many ways to skin a cat these days depending on what your aims are, what your ambitions are. And also what's very important is where the legal gray zone is. This is something which isn't discussed at all or too much, but it's very important. You know, the international, you know, international compliance for, for, for you know, laws and regulations as, as, as prescribed by the UN are important to realize. And you find nations which take advantage of this gray zone very well when they commit sort of uh, cyber attacks or, or any other kind of attack. A good player in this who, who has sort of, who plays a really good game is Russia. Now, Russia has, you know, I admit some very excellent international lawyers on, 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 on Putin's book, on Putin has on his books, who advise on how to, how to, uh, how to you know, uh, engage yourself in what you want to achieve in a way that doesn't really point towards a violation in international law. He's done this very well. Very, and many examples. The annexation of Crimea was a very interesting example. You know, you, know, you had the little green men who went into, in, into, into, into Crimea in, in different parts to, to, you know, to seize land and to, to have a force there. 
also the the self implemented referendum that happened there was was it recognized legally wasn't recognized legally that was important the cyber attacks against the dnc and the rnc the democratic uh, national convention uh, and also the rnc which is the republican one the hacks against hillary clinton again was that china i mean was that russia wasn't it russia what legal case can we build against it? You know, the poisoning of, of Sergei uh, and Yulia Skripal in the UK and also the unfortunate uh, British woman, I can't remember her name now, and her boyfriend who also were poisoned and I think the woman unfortunately died. These cases, the best thing that they could do there was expel expel uh, um, ambassadors and expel you know, uh, political uh, representatives from these nations out, of, uh, out back to Russia because they couldn't build a legal case against what Russia was doing. And if you can't build a legal case, you can't build a consensus with nations to say, hey, this is what they're doing and we're going to bring you back into compliance. You know, so the best thing they, they, they can do is do you know, menial things like uh, you know, expel diplomats and even sanctions are difficult to put on if you don't have a legal case against them. You know? uh, so these are, these are techniques which are the most minimal, minimally, minimally, minimally viable responses you can do when you can't build a legal case against a nation or even a, a, a non-state actor, you know? Because when it comes down to the nitty-gritty international law aspects, this is what nations see in terms of what we can do in response to this. It's not as belligerent or as sort of Wild West mentality as many may think it is, you know? Many may think, well, why didn't the UK do something more than just to dispel diplomats? Well, many different reasons. They didn't do it because could they build a legal case that this was Russia that was accepted by the international community? Then what could they really do? Would they, would, do they have it in their own you know, you know, um, psychological constitution, you can say, to do the same thing to them? What would be the, what would be the repercussions of that? How would they build a, a coalition to, to defend against uh, the response to that action? Because what you're trying to do when you respond in, in kind is you're trying, to build, you're trying to put that nation back into compliance with international law. And it's very difficult, especially when you use currency, when you use these new things, which have a very legal, uh, legal, uh, legal gray zone. When it comes time to, to kinetic or more intrusive types of warfare, which cyber uh, and others, assassinations of, of, of political enemies, although espionage isn't uh, illegal within international law, which is uh, interesting to actually mention. So these are things which nations are going to have to grapple with. And their ability to defend against this will depend, again, on their, on their infrastructure, um, and also on who they're trying to be, and in, in the best case scenario who they're trying to put back, bring back into compliance because the aim of any nation isn't to do something illegally is if something happens illegally against you you have the right to use means to bring that nation back into compliance but it needs to be proportional again what does proportionality mean how do you assess that that's all the conversation for their, uh, for their lawyers to handle in international courts if it gets to that stage. A lot of time it doesn't get to that stage because building a legal case against anyone is very difficult, especially when you have these gray zone tactics which are used by different players. Um, but yeah, for sure, cyber, big thing. And also with cyber, the case is that, you know, uh, 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 so an, an, an enemy force would need to only find one weakness within your infrastructure to cause damage, whereas you need to make sure you're protected all 360 degrees consistently all the time. And if you ask, uh, you know, the, the cybersecurity professionals in the UK, or in the US, they'll tell you that, you know, many hundreds of times a day, you have, you know, attacks from, you know, belligerent powers or non-state actors against their systems. On a daily basis, they're protecting against it. So this is only growing. And as cyber warfare becomes cheaper and more accessible, you'll see this developing more. We saw this, for example, with Estonia, where Russia attacked their, 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 their you know, cyber, and also Estonia is very much more, you know, 
cyberly integrated, if that's even a word, uh, for their you know, government institutions. And you can do many things online where you can't do in other parts of the world. So Russia took advantage of that infrastructure by, you know, by having, you know, non-state actors. There was, there were actually, you know, uh, documents and there was actually a how-to guide to attack these infrastructures for, you know, cyber rebels to actually do this. So again, Russia can say, well, we didn't do this. These guys did it. So again, playing within the law is very, 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 very 50 shades of gray, if, if you don't mind the pun, uh, <laughs> in, in, in international law. So this is what is really important to realize. If you're going to attempt to bring a nation back into compliance, or if you're attempting to, to right a wrong, then first of all, you need to find out what law was broken concretely for you to respond in kind with an international coalition, if that's what uh, you feel is needed. And if those actors or if those partners decide to go in it with you but if you don't have that it's very difficult to build that case and it gets again the response gets a lot weaker and a lot more diluted yeah no it's uh it's interesting you brought up estonia and have a kind of interesting anecdote to share about that i mean a couple of years ago uh i i met uh former president uh of estonia uh former president ilves uh, mm-hmm. And I mean, he, he's the one who kind of implemented a lot of the changes to get Estonia integrated into the cyber fold. Um, sure. And I think one of the questions, it was sort of a panel event at the University of Toronto. One of the questions that I asked him at the end was, you know, it's increasingly being integrated into the cyber fold and everything's being digitized. I mean, you can do essentially any, uh, avail any government services in Estonia digitally. Yeah. How is that going to factor into cyber warfare? I mean, like, you know, the more dependent you are on, you know, these uh, networks, uh, yeah. doesn't that mean that if, you know, one actor getting through uh, your first line of defense means your entire system collapses? Um, yeah. And and his response was sort of just like, yeah, well, fair enough, but we just have to have better backups. I mean, it doesn't seem quite convincing that there's uh, too much of a robust, you know, cyber defense policy uh, in the West, particularly in Europe. And the United States. I mean, NATO have tried to come up with something of a cyber command, but it's been very diluted. Uh, what role do you think these sort of multilateral institutions have to play uh, in terms of coming up with sort of robust common cyber defense systems that you know can mitigate uh, the massive risk of uh, cyber warfare yeah. we see? Yeah. So the way that we explain this is that as technology evolves, so does your power to wage warfare. And so does you, so does the idea of sovereignty also develop more in, in, in a more complex and sophisticated way. So when we were only land-based creatures as human beings, you know, our main area of warfare was land. So cut the land down the middle, that's yours and that's mine, you know? And the only way to have sovereignty over a land is either you discover it or you take it over, you know? So we waged warfare on land. As then we developed boats and we became seafaring creatures as us humans became, sovereignty then extended over the seas. So then we were able to have, you know, uh, you know, gunboat diplomacy, as the Brits called it. And then as we developed airplanes, you know, the military and, and defense and sovereignty, you know, encapsulated the skies. And as then we developed more in our capabilities, cyber became part of our considerations. And also outer space became part of our became part of our considerations and for a nation sovereignty is the main is, is the main idea that keeps a nation alive and together so then sovereignty extended into into the skies in outer space and also in the cyber realm and the more advanced we become in our technologies the more nations need to develop defenses against it so it's, it's a race to the top not really to the bottom it's a race to to the more you develop the more you you need to protect against 
you see? So it's almost like you have, you, you, it's, it's like to make it as simple as possible, you can have sort of, a, you know, a normal sort of a VW Polo car and the insurance is going to be X. But let's say you upgrade to, to uh, I don't know, to, uh, to an Audi, your insurance grows. And then your, 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 your considerations go, oh, what if it gets scratched, it's going to cost more, this and that. But then you're making more money, so you want to grow. You know, you want to sort of show off how, uh, how powerful you are. So then, okay, so we're going to put a new engine into there. Oh, then the insurance grows. Okay, so then insurance costs uh, go up. But then everyone else is doing the same thing, so you need to continue. And then you upgrade to a Ferrari. Oh my gosh, then the costs go up even more. Then you, your considerations, where do I park it? Then you have to pay for parking. Then you have to have these expenses in mind. And then what? Then, then we need to have, you know, safe locks because people steal cars and they do this. So the more you develop as a nation, technologically, uh, the more considerations you need to have to find out how can these technological innovations be breached. And that's consistently what's been happening throughout human history. And it's become more prominent now because we have technology and we have communication where we can see this happening in real time. And governments then need to respond in real time to really assure the public and also to assure their partners that they're doing the best they can, especially if you're a leader in, in, in your group of nations. And also innovations like uh, NATO and the EU and other equivalents need to also respond in kind too, because just like I think it's Article 4 or Article 5 of, 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 the, of the NATO treaty says attack against one nation is, a, is, a, is an attack against all. Like the Mighty Ducks kind of uh, convention, that film, you know, uh, you attack one duck, you uh, attack them all. So that's, that's, that's the mentality of it. Whether it's applied in, print, in practice or not, that's a different thing. But for sure, NATO, back in the day, the Warsaw Pact had the same issues depending on what technology they, uh, they had. Each, each player has their own considerations. So as space becomes, and this is an area we work in a lot as well, when space becomes an arena for warfare, which it is, then how do we militarize space? That's, that's definitely something that's, that's definitely a conversation that people are having as, and they've been having for a long time, since Reagan's Star Wars program until you know, Trump's uh, uh, you know, Space Force and everything in between. They've been talking about this and they've been developing capabilities in outer space. And again, if you're, if you're like, for example, I was in, a, I was hosting a roundtable with, um, with different military bodies and different countries. And I won't mention the country now, but one nation which didn't really have any space infrastructure was at, attended the meeting, the roundtable which I gave, because they were curious to find out how they could use it. And again, using the societal change principle, more people are doing more things in more places, more nations want to develop more space capability in space but then the issue is, is that space is becoming more congested now space debris is becoming an issue and the space is, is situa space situational awareness is becoming more important because hardware is what exists in space it's not like software like cyber where software changes on a daily basis and the actual infrastructure is there right that uh, you don't really need to build too much upon you know you have the internet cables that go under uh, uh, oceans which are there which are developed but so software is what is, is, is what the main you know factor x is but for outer space, it's hardware, it's satellites, it's actual things in outer space. You know, the, the, the ISS, astronauts, you know, these are things that actually are there. And real estate in outer space is expensive and it's, and it's finite, you know. You can't then, you know, cut down some trees and build more space infrastructure. It's only finite, you know. Uh, low Earth orbit, um, uh, many of these things you can't get more of. So this is where the conversations become a lot more important when we develop our technological abilities. And this is only going to continue as more capabilities grow. For innovation purposes, they can also be taken advantage of. You know, very simple examples was Facebook. Facebook was, did Facebook ever think in the beginning that we are going to be the center of, of controversy for, you know, for the ransoming of, the, of uh, democracy? Not in their wildest dreams. They were there as a student uh, uh, company, you know, to connect with friends. And the way they were funding that is by selling ads, right? That was their main, you know, uh, business plan. 
But then as it developed, as more people started to use it, as it became a platform for people's voices, nations and companies and others saw a way of, of, of uh, using this to their advantage. And we never know what the unintended consequences are for these technologies until they happen. And then that's when governments kick into action. But typically they're very slow to act. And also one last thing, I think it's a fallacy to say that technology is developing faster than law, right? Because with, with, with the advent of outer space and cyber, you, you can see how laws, current existing laws can be very flexible to encompass these new technologies. And it's not as, as archaic as one may think it is. That's what we thought in the, even when I was a long time ago doing research in this, I thought, well, how are laws even keeping up to date with what's happening? But you, you, you realize very fast that uh, laws are more flexible and more, uh, more comprehensive than, you, than, than uh, you may think. You know, international lawyers are very smart people and they're able to encompass it if it's, if it's necessary and if it's important. And this is what's been happening with outer space, with cyber and et cetera. Um, so that's my two cents on that. Very fascinating. I mean, I want to take this discussion about technology to the space that, you know, both of us work in, think about 24-7, the political risk industry. Because uh, we've seen a lot of integration recently of, you know, technology, of artificial intelligence uh, into the way that companies do political risk. I mean, it's still a pretty, uh, you know, 90s type industry where we rely a lot on human intelligence. We rely a lot on armchair experts. But increasingly, I mean, we're seeing all these companies pop up that have a heavy, heavy reliance on uh, AI to build models that predict uh, and forecast geopolitical developments. What's your take on that? I mean, do you think that's going to fundamentally change the way we analyze political risk? Mm. Uh, let's say over the next, you know, 10, 15 years? Yeah. There's many ways I can approach that, but I think it depends on a few factors. First, any technology that purports to, to predict anything, I think, is baloney. Because you can't tell me what's going to happen tomorrow in your own life. Yeah. As Manas working with, uh, with London Politica. You can't tell me what exactly is going to happen minute by, by minute. And this is your one life. I can't tell you exactly what's going to happen. So what chance does an AI system have to predict what a whole nation is going to do or a company involved in that nation? The complexities are so complex that building anything that predicts anything, especially in the political risk world, you know, I've got a bridge to sell you in Brooklyn if you think that's possible. So I don't think anyone's trying to do that per se. Um, and if they are, they must know something I don't because it's very difficult. Um, and, also, and I also believe their success in developing these systems also depend on the appreciation of companies and their appreciation of how important geopolitical risk actually is. Because people get confused. There's political risk and there's geopolitical risk. Political risk is what happens within nations' borders and geopolitical risk is when, when nations interact with each other. You know, So even those who work in the field sometimes don't know the difference or get confused on the, and, and use both words uh, uh, interchangeably. But they're two different things. And um, you have naturally the bigger players who have been there for a long time, American players, which are only there because they were the first ones into existence. But it depends on their clients' abilities to appreciate what, what's happening. And also we find, I find is being in this field, that... Many industries are now considering geopolitical risk where in the past they wouldn't need to care less about it because of the way society has changed. A perfect example is the apparel uh, sector or retail. You know, companies, you know, big, 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 big brand names who are selling into, into foreign markets now because maybe they, and this is, this is a fact for many companies who, like Gap, I think is the Gap, for example, who produced a t-shirt of, of, of China and they didn't include Taiwan. It was like the outline they didn't include Taiwan. And I think this it was just an, an oversight. And 
you know the Chinese market and and China and the CCP became very upset about it, and they and they and a lot of brand ambassadors cut ties. Chinese brand ambassadors cut ties with with with, with the brand. There's big boycotts of the brand, and this isn't only the Gap that's faced this, but many other companies which have faced these issues, whether it's branding like this or whether it's you know you know insensitive adverts or whatever. These things are now front and center of companies, and I think geopolitics. Is important, but it's not the only thing. It's it's a hybrid thing. This is why it's why the G four is so important. It's more geoeconomics, geopolitics, societal change. Many you can't. I don't think you can just sell geopolitics as a service anymore, because the world is so interconnected that, that geopolitics is probably one slice of the cake that you need to consider. So if you're saying geopolitics is all we do, and that's all we know. It's great because you're honing into it, but there may be things that don't encompass geopolitics that your clients are going to ask you about, and if you don't know what to say then your your actual offering isn't as uh, strong as what it would have been if you if you encapsulated more of it which is why i think our approach is so unique is because we're encompassing this and also something that what we're doing is that we are actually in the process of developing the world's first global power index which explores a nation on these cops and how they develop which is going to be then turned into into a software that clients can use that can be changed and used um, by our clients to understand how nations are developing, not only isolated within themselves, which is what many geopolitical risk firms do. They just look at it and they have they have country risk reports. Now you tell me if you're if you, if you as a person, you as a person, man, has developed not only by your own growth. You have people in your life that made you who you are today. That's the same as a nation. A nation has foreign direct investors. They have allies. They have foes. They have the populace, which is which is an aspect of of of, of their development. And if you only look within a nation's borders and cut everything else out, then you're really blinding yourself when you're walking into this. And that's not as valuable as having having an approach which encapsulates how the world is changing in real time. That's where the value is. And if you can make it more software oriented, that's a plus, you know, but this, you need to do it in a way that doesn't say we have the magic ball which can predict things because very quickly, people may be in, intrigued. You may get a few clients out of it, but when they see that it's not doing its job, you lose your reputation and, you know, your, your solutions take time to then reimagine because you already came into it with a, with, with a perception that you have the magic formula. You know, anyone trying try to sell you magic formula is selling you snake oil. And uh, for sure, companies now, which may not have geopolitics at the front of their mind, as, as I mentioned, apparel and others, will not be able to see this straight away. But companies and industries like oil and gas, for example, which are born into geopolitical chaos. It reminds you of that Batman quote with Bane where, you know, Bane says to Batman, oh, you just trained in the dark. I was born in the dark. You know, I, I, was, I was trained not seeing anything. That's kind of the case of oil and gas companies. They always operated in very high risk areas, emerging market areas, and they, by their business model, they needed to be more aware of how geopolitics impacts their businesses. But as technology develops, fintechs, medtech, legal tech, um, apparel, as I mentioned, retail, you know, selling things like 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 like, like skincare, something as 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 uh, as uh, doesn't come to mind straight away. As this, L'Oreal, all these different companies and these kinds of industries, when they go into these markets, they really need to be aware of not only the geopolitical situation, but how they how they're how they're perceived in these in these parts of the world. Disney is a, is, is a great example, and their kind of mishaps in China with the Mulan film. You know, you can do, your your audience can do their research in, 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 into, into that. How they it was a big you know, misstep. Um, many different kind of companies and industries now need to consider geopolitics. So as an offering, if you're like a, if you're like a, have an off the shelf solution, then you, you're not going to be able to apply real solutions to your clients. And what we do is we approach it in that way. We have our 
main idea of how the world is developing. Listen, Ian Bremmer does the same thing, and if it works for him, and he's developed that ideology himself, and he's developed a very successful company out of it. You know, I don't take any, anything away from him because he was the first, you know, geopolitical watcher during a time where geopolitics was at the forefront. You know, and he was, a, if don't, if I'm mistaken, Ian, forgive me, but he was a he was an expert in Kazakhstan, and he worked in that field, right? So that was his expertise, right? So he did that. And then as a firm developed, he developed organically, you know, which is great. But I believe his, his assessments, because maybe he's, he's, he's from the U.S., it's very U.S.-centric. Whereas the world is not only U.S.-centric, not anymore, you know. So you need to have that perspective. And also nations which aren't U.S. nations are going to appreciate our perspective, I think, a lot more. Because they realize what they're trying to do and the hard work that they're putting into their development. And if a company can come in and say to them, listen, this is what's happening, you are being, you are valuable to the point where you understand what's happening, you can really, you know, do a lot of good in helping governments and also clients understand this new, this uh, brave new world that we're living in today. Absolutely, a brave new world indeed. Klisman, I really enjoyed our discussion. Uh, if anyone in the audience uh, uh, is wondering, you know, I really enjoyed this, I want to find out more, how can they do that? Many ways. Um, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. Uh, handle is Clisman Marathi. The company page is on Twitter too. Panji Wire on Twitter. Uh, the website is also there. We have a YouTube channel where we publish things. So just uh, Google my name, Google the company, and you'll be able to get into contact with me or one of our team who can uh, who can work with you if you want or give you more insights or um, listen to our podcast as well. We have the Four Corners podcast, which which uh, uh, we run on all platforms. Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple, Google, Stitch Radio, uh, and a bunch of them. YouTube as well. We have our podcast there. So Four Corners Podcast, you'll be able to find it. And that's it, you know. And we publish our white papers as well. As as I mentioned, we're on TV quite often. We're quoted in different publications. So we're trying our best as a fledgling firm that's growing to provide this new perspective. That's what's really needed, Manas. And I think that's what you guys are trying to do as well, which is which is really good, especially as that you you know you're you're a young group of 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 of, 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 of you know growing professionals having this different perspective is so key as opposed to just believing in dogma or believing in just what your lecturers say and applying it to a world where it doesn't exist anymore. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Husband, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Manas. To find out more about London Politica, visit our website, londonpolitica.com, and definitely throw us a follow on LinkedIn. And that's all for this episode, folks. Stay tuned, stay safe, and I'll see you next week.